The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and postpartisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I solve problems. I don't make them. And so I started to ponder at the end of this crazy election season, what the heck went wrong? In 2016, the political polls told us that Hillary Clinton would be the 45th president of the United States. I remember saying to somebody in September, oh, she can go measure for the drapes. But guess what happened to her seven point margin against Donald Trump in all of the national polls? Well, in 2020, the political posters proclaimed that Joe Biden would prevail with an even larger margin against Donald Trump and bring with him an enormous victory in the House and the Senate. Well, funny thing happened on the way to the polls, poll after poll, week after week, the polls were wrong. And here to help us to understand what, why, and what if, the most important term in political polling, is Tricia Ben, the Chief Community Officer of the C-Suite Network and the General Manager of the Heroes Club. Tricia, who originally hails from Canada, began her US career at Ipsos, a global leader in market research, as their Vice President for public, the Public Affairs Practice headquartered in Washington, DC. Can you think of a better person to help us to understand why in 2016 and 2020, but not in 2018, public opinion pollsters' predictions were wrong. We could be nice and say they differed remarkably from the election day results, but let's be, let's call a spade a spade. They were wrong. So Tricia, one, thank you for giving up part of your uh, evening to join us. Um, but why don't we start by, you know, because you're an expert, why don't you, we start by explaining how polling is done? What, what is the difference between a recruited, focused, um, uh, validated panel that you poll repeatedly and the more random telephone call that a person gets while they're trying to make dinner and all they want to do is get off the phone. Mm -hmm. Hi, Joyce. First of all, Hi. it's a pleasure to be here with you. And while I know you are a tremendous businesswoman, your knowledge and passion for all things politics is truly infectious. So I'm grateful to be here with you and, and excited for this conversation because I think a lot of times the polling um, you know, it's out there front facing and it's a great, great story. It keeps us buzzing all the time. Um, but there are a lot of things that people really don't understand about polling. And uh, and so, you know, just to have that conversation and help people to really think critically about the information they're getting, I think is, you know, really, uh, really important. And I and I thank you for creating that space. Um, it, pursuit. You You said the most important thing to think about these things critically. 
to not just go, oh, it's a 10 point advantage and, and go on to the next thing. It's, it's the why, is it rational, is it reasonable? Um, that I think affects perhaps even the number of people who actually vote. Absolutely. And the fact of the matter is there's so much to take into account for that one moment. It's not how they would have voted yesterday or whether they would have gone to uh, to to place their vote yesterday. All that matters is what they did in that one day or, you know, obviously the day they sent their ballots in. But um, it's, it's a very different thing than polls being taken over time. So there are so many criteria to take into account. What was the timing? What was the sample size? How was that sample brought together in those, those people who got interviewed? And what was the format they were interviewed in? What are the implicit biases of those different methods of collecting that information? And then most importantly, for the teams using that information, it's really, from the, from the party perspective, it's really about strategic insight. It's not, it's not um, somehow entirely holistic and, uh, and without uh, problems. It's, it's truly strategic decision-making. From the media perspective, and, and unfortunately that's where the public um, can sometimes not be taught to think through these things critically, it's, it's a great story. And they're, they're show numbers to use and play with and, and create stories around. Um, but, uh, but again, that's not necessarily the, the end all and be all in terms of the truth and certainly how people will end up voting the day of the election. I think that's an excellent point. The people make the, you know, the point in time when they actually pull the lever fill in the circle, whatever, is the moment, you know, that counts, regardless of what they may have thought or said a week ago. And I've, I've read a couple of things uh, in the past couple of days, one by Pew, another one by the Washington Post, um, talking about uh, exactly that difference. So um, we are constantly bombarded, though, in this, in this, you know, because you make an excellent point between the strategic use of polling and the public use of polling, and whether or not you know the public use of polling, um, you know, does the media depend on it too much, it, or is it a crutch for the media in order to keep the the clicks coming? I think it's fantastic for that. I mean, it's exciting. You want to see where is your candidate sitting right now and how are you feeling based on whatever's been shared in the news most recently? So so it is it, it's it's great fun <laughs> from that perspective, which sounds ridiculous to say. I mean, this is such a serious decision making process for all of us and who will lead all of America, which means leading in the world. And and so it's it's not it's not a frivolous thing. However, however, from a media perspective, it is great content and great story. And and you know that's that um, that's not a necessarily a negative. I, I think it's important that we get people engaged. I think it's important that they're looking 
to see what's happening and what they believe in and who they want to make their, you know, how they want to vote, uh, which is the most important thing we can do um, as citizens of the U.S. And um, and that's something I'm very honored. You know, Joyce, this was my first election. So uh, here in America as an American citizen. And so um, that's 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 really important. That engagement that engagement's important. I think it's really critical, though, to understand from the public perspective that this is all statistics, you know, and mm -hmm. with statistics, you're talking about research samples. So you look at a whole state and you collect 1500 people's points of view. And if that sample is truly random, i.e. we could interview a, a, a representative sample of every voter across that state, then, then we could say, okay, well, the numbers collected are within three points either way. So for example, if we had a number where uh, we've got 55%, uh, then that true number, if we had a truly random, perfect sample of the voting population answering truthfully, would be between 47% and 53%. And so it doesn't take too long if you're thinking about it and in, in with the statistical reliability of that sample, if it was a perfect sample, which it never can be because you you mentioned phone, online, uh, mobile. There's so many things that impede our ability to get a truly random sample of the full adult population of a whole area. Um, but even if we could, those numbers would be within three points either way of the number that's collected. And so when you look at all the numbers, that puts most of what we've seen within the margin of error. Yeah, it's about 1% off in 48 of the 50 states. Exactly. And that's not too bad, really. No, um, it really, it is the national number that was, that I think is so misleading. So let's talk for just a second about that, because you and I both know that that's a headline. Um, it, it's not a reflection of reality. So, you know, you're a former pollster. Should we, should we poll nationally? We don't, we don't vote nationally. Should we poll nationally? Are we giving people a distorted view of the, uh, of the potential uh, or, or not? I think information is important. I think transparency is important. So I would say, yes, I think there should be polling. I think that the transparency, transparency should also extend to explaining what that margin of error means. And, and at the end of the day, if the reinforcement is, this is what things are looking like, these are, this seems to be how people are reacting to what we're seeing the candidates say in their speeches, uh, what they're doing, where they're traveling, all those types of things, this seems to be the impact. And ultimately, that every single vote matters, no matter what. <laughs> Then, then I think that's that is very valuable, and I think the engagement is important. The idea that that is the vote is ridiculous. The vote is the vote, and all that matters is those ballots that come in. So I'm, um, I, I'm, I definitely feel that the the polling has its place. It is important for engagement, but it is not the end result, and and nor should it be treated as such by either the public or certainly the strategists. And, and, you know, there's a lot of armchair evaluation afterward, Joyce, and you see people saying, well, then, you know, President Trump shouldn't be, shouldn't have gone here and uh, President-elect uh, Biden shouldn't have gone there or should have gone here. It, that's great. 
to think of after the fact. But in, in the moment, you're strategizing and you're making assumptions based on not just what you're seeing in the polls, but also the momentum and the feel of what's happening. And, and as pollsters, the truth is we're weighting the data to try to, try to encompass that in our, in our data as well. So what you see is not just the numbers, it's also being weighted based on the assumptions of how people have voted in the past, you know, whether they're likely to go out based on the weather and how they voted in the past, et cetera. So there's so many different criteria that are going into those numbers that are put out there. And then certainly the strategy in terms of how to deliver against them for each campaign. Well, uh, and I think that's really true. And especially in this particular election, you had another unknown, which was what would be the impact of, of millions of mailed in ballots in an election process, which normally is a same day vote. Absolutely. And, and, and did that drive, for example, a larger turnout? And all evidence points to the fact that it did, you know, and that's what we're seeing. But we also have the compounding factors of COVID. And what does that mean for people and their likelihood of, um, of voting and then direction of the vote and certainly when they would vote in the format they would use. So those are definitely complicating factors. I think what's even more important that really truly doesn't get addressed is the construction of the language used in political campaigns. And, and that's where it's a little more interesting and a little more um, important that we think about it in the critical ways uh, of, of what it means to be a good citizen and also how we protect citizen rights, you know, and, and what politicians are using in their language is frequently uh, completely constructed through what the communications research says. So I'm far more conscientious of what that means and um, and you know are we being represented is the is are, are we holding our politicians to the highest standards versus them saying what will uh, create the greatest support for an argument regardless of whether that argument is based in fact um, and and Joyce I know what you're I know you know what I'm talking about <laughs> yes I know I'm laughing over here <laughs> yeah I, 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 I truly believe this is a space where we have not educated the public that you know when you see arguments uh, for and against something those aren't just being put out there because that's what a candidate believes those are being put out there because they're tested to achieve a greater result either in um, in not having people react negatively to it or reacting more positively to it in terms of the voting base. So, and when you look at the social, I don't know if you've seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma. Yes. Right. So, you know, the whole premise is as we villainize, as we, as we uh, create enemies out of people who think differently and go further down the rabbit hole in each direction, um, that that language and the language we're using around the polarization of the public uh, creating other is really, um, I think that's far more dangerous, far more concerning than the political polling that really is um, enjoyable. You know, it's enjoyable to watch. It's engaging for people. And, and that I'm, I'm very comfortable with. As I said, it's, it's the language that we use in constructing uh, what people should be thinking that isn't considered. 
critically. I, I think I think you're absolutely right, and I think you're hitting on something that that I think um, is is important and not well understood, and that is the the difference between opinion polling when you seek an opinion and uh, the establishment of uh, persuadable language that comes from sometimes from the way in which a questionnaire is laid out for pollsters, but also um, is aimed at um, changing the direction of the polls uh, by using, as you refer to it, incendiary language. I mean, I, I am thinking that, um, uh, I, or I was thinking earlier this afternoon, in fact, on less than an hour ago, the uh, DHS lead for cybersecurity for the elections was fired for saying that it was a fair, honest election. Um, I'm, I'm, cons I'm worried uh, as you point out, uh, about the use of incendiary language as a means of dividing, especially when the polls are showing one candidate doing less well than another, um, and or as we like to refer to them, talking points. And talking points are come from focus groups. So take a moment and talk about the relationship between focus groups opinion polling, and why it is that the strategists inside the polls, other than the fact that they this is what they do for a living, so they look at it more critically than we do, why is it that the strategists saw different things in the polling results than, let's say, the media? Mm-hmm. Well, so Joyce, uh, th those are those are great questions. So, so my degrees are in sociology and anthropology, and then you know my my career, I started out in public affairs and polling and so on, and and made a very conscientious uh, decision to step away. Now, uh, but I'm fascinated by it, and I follow it, and I love it, and, and I can't help it. I mean, I just love why do people do what they do? And when you look at sociology and anthropology, essentially that is. Uh, anthropologies are qualitative, you know, how people talk, watching them, seeing how they interact and what they react to, et cetera. And then there's the political polling, which is statistical. That's your sociology. That's the science of the numbers of people and the likelihood of them doing different things. So, so when we look at qualitative research with polling, we're trying to get people talking, talking about what makes sense to them, uh, what arguments they make, how they would make them, what they think of the candidates. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, you, you have them uh, think to them as, you know, if they were a neighbor, what kind of neighbor would they be? You know, and you and you getting them talking through the issues using their own wording. And then what happens is as you start to get the insights in terms of how people are uh, phrasing things around the different positions of the of the uh, leaders of the the platform that they're standing on and so on then what you do is you go into the statistical research the larger numbers where you're testing scientifically how do those ideas and those insights that we gathered as a qualitative base it might be only 10 people another 10 people another 10 people in a focus group how do we take those insights and things we saw and then test them statistically and see what's most impactful so so when it comes to crafting language, for example, you're going to hear people saying things in a qualitative group where you think, huh, 
that seemed to be pretty convincing. And, you know, that's powerful. So, so I'll give you one example, and I have no insight into this other than just observing like everyone else in the public. But the terminology that President Trump used um, in addressing the coronavirus when he was publicly speaking, he said, we're rounding the corner. You, you know how many times he mm-hmm. said that voice? I, I didn't count, but I'm sure you did. <laughs> A lot. Right? Yeah. As far as I could see and what I was taking in pretty much every day. And if I, if I were looking at that, all I would simply say is when they did the qualitative work that seemed to work, that was a good insight tested statistically, I would suggest that the base and then the people they were worried about in terms of the support that they would need to, um, to get the, the election won, they were most influenced by those words were rounding the corner. So there were a lot, there are a lot of other ways to say that, um, but he specifically chose that terminology. And so, you know, and, and, and I'm only using that example just because so many of his speeches were covered and that was such a top, you know, such an important I, issue. For I'm him. sure, but I'm yeah. sure you're right that that so, was a poll tested answer. And president elect Biden would have the same kind of insights and research and so on. So, so um, it, it, this is something that's been done for decades. It's absolutely an essential part of how a campaign is put together and how the language gets crafted. And the, the concern I have is as we think to uh, how we see our world and how we see others as they have differing points of view, it's really critical that we don't use language to villainize the other side, to demonize the other side. And, and that's why I love the documentary, The Social Dilemma. As we continue to, in the media, you know, when we get to the point of villainizing the other side, then we hit a very dangerous scenario where the, the extremes of those two sides become representative of the whole of those two sides and they draw further and further apart. And I thought the social dilemma did a great job with that. And so that's where it does concern me in terms of the political polling, uh, fueling that kind of separation and a lack of connection to what actually does really matter for the average citizen and how politicians can be representing our needs in the work that they do on our behalf. And you wanna know how correct you are? There were a couple of nurses interviewed by one of the major networks, I believe it was NBC, about uh, patients they're caring for in the end stages of COVID in uh, hospitals in the, in the Dakotas, who, as they're being intubated, still claim COVID is a hoax. Yeah, uh, it's, um, my goodness. We, you know, we've <laughs> moved. We've moved beyond what I traditionally refer to as a talking point, which is the daily brief that every member of, of a caucus in Congress gets, that is, and they're told, this is what you're going to tell the press. That Those are talking points, and I have argued over the years that if you repeat an inaccurate talking point often enough, you can make it truth. I think Nancy Pelosi is a, is a top practitioner of that you know, take a semi-truth and, and make everybody believe it through a talking point that's repeated until people say, oh, that must be correct. But that's a different animal than the extreme language that we've heard in recent weeks, which sadly, as you point out, came out of focus groups. 
Yes. Well, and, and the fact of the matter is it's the strategic use of them. And so as we, as we, as critical thinkers of our own, um, interact in the world and certainly in the C-suite network platform, which, which I lead, um, you know, our goal, uh, my business partners, Jeffrey Hazlett, and, and um, you know, I know we're so proud to have your podcast on our platform. Um, you know, our, our focus, our constant goal is that we create conversation and we represent great business leaders, you know, and they vote in all different ways. And, and so uh, we constantly reinforce our values of relevancy, reach and reciprocity, and that uh, our, we are seeking understanding with each other, not to convince the other or certainly villainize the other. And, um, and, and it's really been, um, I have to say, Joyce, just a, a real pleasure and an honor to represent such great business leaders uh, such as yourself and so many others. I mean, we have a, over a million downloads on our podcast every month and we have over a million that we touch just with our social, let alone, you know, the over 300 events we'll run this year, um, you know, and, and to hold that space where there's the respect of how do we work through challenges and uh, not and not leave it at the level of separation and and uh, uh, basically a name calling exercise, um, and and really get to solving problems and and that's been as I said just such an honor and a pleasure because as business leaders we have a responsibility to solve challenges. Everybody in our communities looks to us to solve challenges, you know, not just in the business, <laughs> but across the community and our families and so on. And so, um, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's critical to keep pursuing that. And I know you're committed to that. Um, and it's, and it's, it's what we need to do. And we need to look at tools like polling and, and understand there are certain things that make it an interesting game and certainly something that can be very powerful and engaging people. Um, but then we have to use our own critical thinking and we need to make sure that we're acting in the way that we know is appropriate to help lead our country forward. And I think that's an important point um, in terms of where, especially where I try to take Reimagine America, which is to, to do what a business analyst does, to look at the problem um, to do the analysis and offer some solutions because we can't be passive participants, especially as business people. We can't be passive participants in this electoral process. We need to be contributory to it, and we need to make have expectations of our elected leaders at every level, from municipality to the White House, that in fact they they work not just for our today, but for our tomorrow and for our children's tomorrows. And I don't think, you know, and that's what I try to remind people at Reimagine America is it's up to us. It's up to us to demand more of them. It is not for us to listen to the talking points, answer the polling questions and think we're done after we've filled in the circle and put that ballot in the envelope, that's just where we, where we begin and too many of us don't participate between the polls, shall we say, of every four years. You'll see a huge downturn in terms of 
this election and what happens in the midterms. You right. know, I don't think we'll see. I don't think we'll see 150,000 votes again. It would be lovely. I don't think it's going to happen. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, Joyce, you're spot on. And the fact of the matter is, you know, it's about how we lead. And I think leadership, true leadership is being authentic. It's being transparent. And, and, it's, and it's having the courage to step up and step in. And the fact of the matter is, as business leaders, we're dealing on the ground floor of all the major challenges of life. You know, it's not just building our business. We have people, real people, you know, yes. children at home, uh, you know, all the things of life. And, and so as business leaders, we're creating success with many challenges that politicians have to try to address without the experience we have. And so, you know, it really is important to ensure we're, we're, we're <laughs> crossing that chasm and, and we're sharing in that experience, that knowledge and the ability to just get things done. You know, um, the, I'll, I'll tell you what, an entrepreneur, you know this, Joyce, an entrepreneur whose, you know, shoestring budget is uh, that's committed and determined will get a lot done. You know, <laughs> and, that, is, uh, that is true. <laughs> Talk about a shoestring budget. Um, one last one last question you know, at, uh, because you and I can get off on tangents. We're good at that. But one last question is, you know, as somebody who worked in polling, who, you know, uh, understands and shares my cynicism about talking points and so forth, is there a point, maybe the statistical, looking at the statistical um, de deviation between what was expected and what happened um, was in 2016, um, it, well, actually, it happened the, the same way. The object, the the assumption was that in 2020, the undecideds would break for the challenger. So that would have, and and that contributed to Biden's 10 point lead. Where in the final analysis, it turned out that the undecideds broke for the incumbent, despite all the issues surrounding that particular person. Um, so is there a point when polling and polling and polling in the last few days or as people start to actually go to the ballot, is, is that still a net positive or is that one of maybe the changes that we should make is that once, once people actually begin to submit their ballots, which is now about a month before the actual election day, should we stop giving them polls that may or may not be relevant to the outcome? I understand the idea of maybe we shouldn't so people can own how they want to vote and, and, um, and maybe be unencumbered by the noise that's happening. But I have to lean in the direction of we are a democracy. Information is power. And the fact of the matter is some people will have that information one way or another. Um, oh, so, yeah. The strategists will. Absolutely. One way or another. And so I have to leave it in the direction that uh, that we want to see that polling, um, that, that we want to be sharing it and so on. The idea that it's the end all and be all. Um, or uh, somehow replaces what's actually going to happen on the day of the vote is another 
it is, is as I said, a big mistake. And, and here's the other thing is pollsters uh, frequently, most frequently, have their own uh, biases and, you know, are frequently known to be either a Democrat polling firm or Republican polling firm. And my experience was that I was, I am still an independent, and that made me a pretty effective pollster because I wasn't thinking of things through the lens of the political party. I was thinking through things in terms of what's shaping the way that people are voting. And so, so that definitely has a part to play as well. And again, the critical consumer needs to be thinking to what exactly are they getting. Now, there are challenges to that, but I think, again, we need to be more transparent versus less transparent. And, you know, if, if you have any responsibility in terms of what you're consuming, that, that Netflix show that I mentioned, uh, and I know nobody who was part of that, Joyce, so I promise you I'm not plugging it in any way. <laughs> um, oh, no, no, I plug it all the time. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really important for us to understand the algorithms that are feeding different forms of data. And, you know, I had a, just a fascinating conversation. I know you would have loved it, uh, where I had a friend that I was speaking with and was absolutely convinced that anyone who would vote Democrat was somebody who loves flag burning. And, and, I, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I hear what you said. Do you think that that's really true? And I know this person uh, is very isolated and uh, works alone, lives alone, and, and consumes a lot of social media. And I said, do you, like, I, I'm honestly asking you the question, do you really believe that's true? And he said, yes. And I said, so, and then it got onto the whole side of the extreme left and that representing the whole left of the Democratic Party. And I said, well, isn't that the same as saying the extreme right would represent the whole of the right? And it was just so, and that was the same day, ironically, that I watched The Social Dilemma. And um, so you know, it, it, it just was such a living example to me of how simply that's been followed in terms of forcing the data down those two sides and reinforcing, reinforcing those arguments to the, to the uh, complete negation of where most people sit, which is neither <laughs> the extreme left or the extreme right. And um, so, so, Joyce, I would lean on the direction definitely of the more transparency, the better. And certainly the, the uh, real ground, um, uh, lay, laying that foundation of who are we really talking about and, and what is, where is the evidence of this data and, um, and making sure we're listening to all voices. I think you're absolutely right. And so I'll tell you, Ipsos, your former employer, uh, actually has a poll out that's now a week old uh, that agrees with a uh, election, couple days after election day uh, podcast that I put out in which I argued, we are still a center-right country, let's all relax. Uh, and and I think the, the very close congressional election uh, proves that we are a center-right country. Um, but uh, the Ipsos polling says 80% of Americans who voted believe that Joe Biden won this election. So 
uh, you know, I'm heartened by that very large percentage, despite uh, cable news and the various silos. And without telling any tales out of school, because we all know I actually live and hail from Silicon Valley, um, I will tell you that a great many of um, my friends in the tech industry um, avoid social media um, like the plague. I, I look at Twitter every now and then uh, because, and, and, and I say every now and then because I don't think it's good for my blood pressure. Uh, I have to remind myself that less than 10% of Americans actually ever look at Twitter uh, because, because I think you're right. But then in, in concluding or maybe saying, you know, let's in, in ending this conversation and talking about having another one, I think the media has a very big role to play in this, not just social media. Yeah. mainstream media as well in teaching critical thinking. I know I did a project for the um, California Community College System, which is the largest single system in uh, the Western world, uh, in which the biggest concern that the faculty had about expanding access to technology was that we don't do a good job of teaching students how to think critically. This was 20 years ago. And it's still true today. And I think you've made that point repeatedly. Absolutely. And, and in business, it's, it's taking away the fear of failure, move faster, move stronger, um, and, and be authentic about who you are, what you're trying to achieve. And, and I think when we have an educated public that is taught to think critically that way, um, then, then we empower people to be working toward those positive outcomes that we want to see. And with the media, Joyce, you and I have had this conversation. Uh, yes, we I, have. <laughs> I am so disappointed that we don't have that protection of the public that I believe is the most important, the highest calling of great journalism, which is to protect the public, not to be associated with a party. And, um, and that's a challenging uh, thing to do. Obviously, there are lots of different ways of looking at things, but people enjoy the challenge, you know, and I think it's really important to be bringing people along in that journey. And we're all going to have, if you have great people, you're all going to have, we're all going to have different ways of looking at that problem, different ways of solving for that problem. And isn't that a wonderful thing? We need as much solving of problems <laughs> and great outcomes as we can get. And that diversity of approach and thought is a wonderful thing. And our checks and balances of everything we have that makes our country great makes that possible. So I, I, I would just love to see, you know, more of that and certainly um, and, and certainly that notion of how we are critically thinking about what we're doing. And that does not mean being critical of others. It means self-examination as well. Yes, I think that's true. And I think that's a lovely place to leave this conversation. Tricia, thank you so much. I'm sure everybody's learned a lot. Uh, and it has been a great conversation, and we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Joyce. Take care. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. 
Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.